0: You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Hi, and welcome to another episode of our Wiley Connected podcast series on 5G, where we do deeper dives into our 5G roadmap. I'm Kat Scott in our TMT practice. I'm here with Megan Brown, also in our TMT practice, who will tell us some more about today's episode and our guests. Today's topic is going to be
1: on security and privacy. We address it in the chapter of the roadmap, but we're here with some special guests to really dig in and help folks understand what we're talking about when we discuss 5G security and privacy. So we're really pleased to have in Studio W with us uh, John Marino, who is the Vice President for Cybersecurity and Technology at CTIA, the Wireless Association, just by way of background, uh, John's been with CTIA since 2012, uh, where he created the role that leads CTI's efforts across the wireless industry, both to support advocacy, but also information sharing and the uh, nuts and bolts of uh, cybersecurity across the wireless ecosystem. Previously, John was at Dell, uh, working on mobility solutions, and also at Alcatel-Lucent. We also are pleased to have with us Melanie Tiano, who's the Director of Cybersecurity and Privacy at CTIA, where she helps push forward CTIA's policy positions and coordinates some of the work that the members are doing across the ecosystem. Before that, she was at the Federal Communications Commission in enforcement and previously in the Senate. So, We're just going to jump right in. Um, John, um, can you explain to us what 5G is for the layperson? I mean, we hear a lot of marketing speak. We hear FCC commissioners and congresspeople talking about 5G. But really, from a technical perspective, what do we mean?
2: What we're really talking about is the fifth generation of wireless technology. And wireless technology has been around for about 40 years. And what we're actually doing now is leapfrogging to a new generation of technology. But that new generation of technology is totally and completely transformative. So when you think back to 1G, 2G, 3G, and 4G, you can think through how did we go from mobile phones and cars to the flip phone to smartphones to the wireless internet. Well, now think of all of that in some sense taking a transformative step into something that's much more dramatic than anything that we've seen before because when you look at 5G, it's really about how wireless embraces everything else that's out there in the context of smart cities, in the context of autonomous vehicles and vehicle-to-vehicle communication, in the context of automating factories, artificial intelligence, et cetera. So what we're really looking at is a completely new architecture. Uh, That architecture is what drives that transformation. And so that it goes beyond smartphones to really embrace all the other things, all the other devices, all the other enhancements to, you know, our society in terms of the availability of information. And how does that information reach all the different segments that are out there?
1: Great. Melanie, who? What are the key entities that are involved? Because this isn't something where one company is just sort of doing its thing. It's going to create the new innovation called 5G. It's complicated and it's spread
3: out. So who are the entities that are doing this? Thank you guys for having us here. I'm always excited to do our first podcast here. Um, so thank you. I think it's an important topic too. So I'm I'm excited to dig in. So I think the carriers and the OEMs obviously are are helping to to develop this, but it's also a lot of the a big part of it is going to come from developing the standards and the specifications for this, and that's happening in 3GPP, IETF, and to some extent um, ISO.
1: And can we pause for just a sec for listeners who have not don't maybe understand what these standards are? We talk in our roadmap about the standards bodies and the process, but. What does 3GPP and ITF mean to, to people who don't follow this? I mean, who is that? Is that the United Nations? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I'll, I'll give it a shot and then give Melanie an opportunity to chime in. Um, so these are global standards. And the standards are set by subject matter experts from across the world, from companies like um, Nokia, Ericsson, AT&T, Verizon, so on and so forth. And these companies get together through standard-setting organizations that have been established. The 3GPP is one of those standards organizations that's focused on mobility. IETF is focused on the Internet. That's the Internet Engineering Task Force, something that grew out of the creation of the Internet that started in the United States. And then grew globally. And the IETF is the organization that sets those standards. ISO has been around for almost a century now in terms of an international standards organization. And many of the different players around the world rely upon those standards so that you have global interoperability, so that you have the ability to take your device from New York to Los Angeles, and it works. And it works interoperably. It functions the way you would expect it to. Your browser works the same way. You have access to the same capabilities. And it's because of those standards, the ability to roam, the ability to interoperate, the ability to provide security. Uh, end to end um, and so that's what those standards are really all about, and they're based upon um, again a a participation that ensures that the best technical ideas the best technical input is what makes it into the standard and that's why you've seen so many rapid advances in wireless technology
1: and are those standards i mean what when they come out, are they voluntary? do governments mandate them? Or is it just sort of a bottom-up kind of, this is what we all agree to, and we're going to go and make the internet work?
2: Generally, they're voluntary. Um, There are jurisdictions that will mandate them, but generally they're voluntary. But they're really driven by global economies of scale because you need to ensure that you don't have one type of device or one type of phone that operates in Europe and then a different type of phone that operates in the United States. And in fact, that's what we saw in the early days of 1G, where you had a variety of different analog standards around the world. And with the introduction of a common global standard is what then drove the miniaturization of devices and technology to to you know, the flip phone, from the flip phone to the smartphone, from the smartphone to the wireless internet, you now have the ability to use global economies of scale and the global supply chains to then drive down the cost of technology so that we can all walk around with the smartphone in our pockets. Okay.
1: Does
3: the government participate in standards? I mean, do they have visibility into this? They do a little bit. I don't think that their participation is as much as it once was, but they are um, to some extent.
1: Okay. So it's not like the, the private sector is just off doing this stuff and it's a surprise to our government.
2: No. And in fact, uh, rep- organizations like NIST will often participate in 3GPP and the IETF. <clears throat> you also have participation from other government agencies. I will say, though, that the private sector is encouraging government to increase their participation given some of the concerns that have been raised of late, because indeed, it's important to have you know the government there to, in some sense, witness firsthand how the standards process works as opposed to you know speculating.
1: Great. So that's a good segue to just jump right into security. There's a lot of talk about 5G security uh, from Congress, from the press, from FCC. Um, It's not readily understood that 5G is bringing with it a lot of security, right? This is not just running out and building a new technology without security in mind. So we've talked a lot about security in our 5G future. Can you walk us through a little bit of the the technical enhancements that are going on in 5G?
2: So... In 5G standards, what you see is the most advanced security architecture and platform that's ever been created, um, and I don't say that to sound hyperbolic, but indeed that's a fact because what every generation of technology has done is built upon the security from every previous generation of technology into the current generation of technology and what 5G has done is now morph that into a completely new architecture where for the first time you have the ability to actually do end-to-end authentication. And you have the ability to, in some sense, incorporate not only security by design, but also incorporate privacy by design into the standards at the very beginning. There are new algorithms, there's new technologies, there's new capabilities that actually allow you to deal with the massive growth that you're going to see in the number of devices that are connected to the network. And by that, you need a security platform that scales, that scales with IoT, that scales with smart cities, that scales with drones, so on and so forth. And in order to do that, the security platform has to be very dynamic, has to leverage technologies like artificial intelligence. In general, previous technologies was one size fits all, whereas opposed to in 5G, you will find the ability to now have flexible security of, let's say, drones versus IoT devices versus smart cities versus smartphones so that you can adapt to the application and to the use case. Mm-hmm.
1: Melanie in addition to all of those technical enhancements like slicing and software defined networks um 5G is going to benefit from security lessons that have been learned coming through the various generations that John has uh, identified um, in the previous wireless generations, and the fact that security is not an afterthought at this point. For if it ever was, for the industry as it goes to to make some of these standards, can you chat a little bit about the the wireless industry's track record with security and what that means for the future of five G?
3: Sure. So the wireless industry is and always has been. Focused on security and not just security of the networks, but also securing their customers' data and the devices that are on the networks. And so every generation is better than the last. So as John said, the benefit with 5G is this is the first generation where security has been a focus since the very beginning. So all of the enhancements that they and lessons learned through 2G, 3G, and 4G, which 4G LTE has the most robust security to date, except for where 5G has already been rolled out. Um, And so 5G will benefit from that and also bring in all of those new enhancements.
1: And I guess we should point out, I mean, the cybersecurity working group at CTI has been around for many years now. This is not just a 5G-focused kind of discussion. The the industry has been uh, information sharing, working with DHS, uh, working together for many years.
2: No, that's very true. And in fact, what the cybersecurity working group tries to do is to, one, anticipate where are the threats and what are the kinds of things that we need to be looking for in the future so that the kinds of enhancements that you're seeing in 5G become a reality, number one. Number two, we coordinate very closely with government we work very closely with uh, DHS. We work very closely with the FCC, and all of the relevant stakeholders within government, so that we're in lockstep in addressing the kinds of issues that folks are concerned about. Because again, what we're also trying to, what we're always trying to do, is to anticipate where we think the threats are going, so that again, we could always provide the most robust security platform possible.
0: And you know, a lot of that work is being done because there are risks in wireless technology and and with our 5G future. and I think nobody's blind to that fact. What's your perspective, John, on those 5G security risks?
2: So uh, the security risks are real. And in fact, it's something that we're looking at in collaboration with the FCC through the CISRC process in terms of what are what are the risks that we're going to encounter in the transition from 4G to 5G? And then what are the risks associated with 5G itself? Just because in the context of the US, we're looking at all of the security levers that exist within the 5G technology. And what are the right levers that we need to think about in the context of how 5G is rolled out in the United States? And again, we do that in collaboration with government because not only do we do that through the FCC, but we have participation from DHS and so forth. However, no system is perfect. Every system will have risks. And so part of what we do is to also look at, in the event that there are risks, what's the mitigation and recovery strategy that we need to think about? Because that's really what we need to be prepared for so that in the eventuality, We have a way to deal with it.
0: Right. One of the concerns with 5G is the proliferation of devices um, and the Internet of Things, and then just the movement of computing power to the edge. Can you break that down for our listeners as sure. we talk about those specific risks? Uh,
2: and in fact, I, I talk about that in the context of one of the significant security enhancements in the 5G architecture, because once you've moved computing power out to the edge, you now have the ability to mitigate in a way that's much more robust, because today everything kind of goes through the core network. And everything could represent a threat to the core network and you're mitigating on a much larger scale. Whereas if you're out at the edge, you have the ability to detect and then mitigate by isolating that edge and then taking customers that might be affected, rerouting them to a different part of the edge and isolating any risk that may exist. So that fragmentation, that ability to segment the different parts of the network through edge computing is actually a significant security enhancement.
0: So it's a feature, not a bug. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of what CTIA does is spend a lot of time explaining these risks and mitigations to policymakers. Um, Melanie, taking a a look specifically at IoT, the Internet of Things, what is the government right now doing on IoT and how's CTIA involved in that?
3: So there's a lot of government activity on IoT right now, and CTIA is involved in virtually all of it. So I think some of the the key standouts, you know, NIST is very engaged on IoT. They've been working for some time on developing a set of core baselines. They have several documents out now that really are aiming to lay out what are the, the baseline security features that IoT devices should have. And so CTIA and with our, our cybersecurity working group, we engage a lot with NIST on trying to help them to, you know, d- Establish what are the baselines that are the most important and where do those fit in given the vast range of devices that exist. The FTC is, of course, very engaged on IoT. Um, they are the primary privacy and data security enforcement agency, and they have really taken a look at IoT. So they've done workshops and they've put out guidance for manufacturers and for companies that are, you know, including IoT in their systems and also those that are making making the devices. They've also taken some significant enforcement actions against IoT device makers, um, you know, those that were not protecting the data that they were collecting or were allowing, you know, um, included vulnerabilities. Um, there's also, there, you know, there was a lot of focus in the f- a few years leading up till now on botnets, which is not necessarily specifically an IOT thing, but it is an IOT thing. Um, so <laughs> in uh, 2017, there was the executive order that focused on reducing uh, botnets. And so uh, commerce really took that and was, with, um, how do you address that issue? And so they have a roadmap that focused on, you know, some of what NIST is working on and encouraging NIST to work on that. And then, you know, there's a lot of other agencies that are sort of like raising their hand on this on specific issues The uh, consumer product safety commission was taking a look at IOT devices, the FDA to the extent that medical devices are connected, which eventually I think all most, or most all, will yeah. be, um, and so really, it's it's everywhere, you know, and then there's the hill, which is a whole other a whole, whole other, other discussion.
0: discussion. Yeah. <laughs> and not to mention states, right? Like, the, the, you know, there's enough to keep up with at the federal level, but states are also getting in on the action with all the scattered activity. I mean, there's
3: clearly a risk of fragmentation. What are your thoughts on that? So, yes, there is there's definitely a risk of fragmentation. I think that is especially concerning when you start talking about legislation and regulating. Right. And so, like, the Hill is very active. There are lots of bills that are looking at IoT security. um, And the states are also so California and Oregon, I think, have already passed legislation dealing with IoT security and the concern, you know, and then there's the whole international aspect. Right. So internationally, they're looking at IoT security. And so I think, there is a real concern there are certain areas where having 50 different state laws in addition to federal laws is difficult to manage but manageable and i but i think you know when we start talking about privacy and and iot security and cybersecurity it becomes far more complicated to comply with 50 conflicting state laws so it it's a risk
1: yeah i mean we see clients that are complying with the California IoT law, and they're basically having to choose to design, you know, design devices to comply with that law. That's a relatively flexible law because it talks about reasonableness and appropriateness, um, which you know, if if a state's gonna wade in, I think that's the least harmful way to do it. But California is certainly projecting its regulatory power outside of the state of California to affect the device manufacturing lifecycle. You know, is. Maybe that's great if you're California, but it's not necessarily great if you're, you know, the Attorney General of North Carolina, for example. So CTIA has not sort of sat by and watched IoT percolate and develop. You guys have stood up certification program and have been a leader in this area. So can you talk a little bit about why you guys did that and what that program's about?
3: Thanks for asking about this. It is something that we are very proud of. It was years in the making, right? So in 2018, we announced that we uh, had developed a first-of-its-kind IoT cyber certification program. A lot of people don't realize that CTIA, in addition to being a trade association, also has a decades-long history of certifying devices. We have over 100 authorized test labs throughout the world, and we've certified thousands of devices The focus of those certifications had mostly been on interoperability. And so this, now we've included cybersecurity. And so, John, I don't know if you want to jump in.
2: It was driven by our members uh, through the Cybersecurity Working Group. Again, as Melanie said, leveraging the work that we had done for decades in the existing um, certification program, but now creating a new paradigm associated with cybersecurity, particularly in the context that for IoT cybersecurity, it's not one size fits all, because you've got to deal with you know everything from the GPS dog collar to an industrial control system. And cybersecurity is not the same for all of those devices. And so we had to come up with a regime that was manageable, something that would fit into the existing program, but something that would work and encourage people to go through the certification program. So we came up with a good paradigm of a a level one, level two, level three type of testing regime. And indeed, we've had very good success overall with the program because we've had dog collars come through it, as well as uh, very sophisticated industrial control devices. And so it is something that's unique uh, because it goes beyond many of the frameworks that you've seen and a lot of the work that's been done, good work that's been done by other organizations like uh, what's been done through NIST, what's been done through other uh, trade associations that basically establish a framework, but then leave it up to self-certification as opposed to having independent labs, which is what we do at CTIA. We have independent labs that actually go through the test procedure, generate the data, and then CTIA grants the certification. And indeed, it's a model that has worked really well for decades. And again, we're leveraging that in the context of uh, cybersecurity for IoT devices. And and most recently, we've incorporated 5G into the process.
1: That's great. So I think it might be time to pivot to um, supply chain risks, right? I think a lot of public policy discussions about 5G security involve or come out of concerns about supply chain and the so-called race to 5G and some concerns about uh, China's manufacturing or the Chinese legal system. So Some of these fears relate to, you know, we can start with this one, um, alleged Chinese manipulation or or undue influence of the standards processes that we talked about earlier. Um, You know, when I've looked at the 3GPP sort of rules and codes, they are set up to prevent um, one particular region or country from having undue influence. But what is your perspective on this? I mean, you've lived with these standards bodies for decades. What's your take on this particular aspect of this discussion?
2: So uh, to that point, the standards process, the rules, the guidelines, procedures that they're following and that they've followed for many decades is to ensure that no one organization could put their thumb on the scale and in particular to avoid some of the flaws that we've seen in other venues um, like the ITU where nation states can put their thumb on the scale. And that's why you see organizations like 3GPP being created whereby it's really driven by the private sector – Certainly there's participation from government, but it's driven by the private sector and it's driven by technical contributions, uh, judgments and evaluations that are made by subject matter experts. And then that's what's then incorporated based upon the best technical merit in terms of what makes its way into the standard. And, you know, the evidence that we have in the evolution of wireless technologies, I think, speaks to that. The same thing is true when it comes to the internet. So there are safeguards. There are You know, safety valves that are in place within the process to ensure that again, there's there's you know no one organization has over influenced the process, and I think we've seen that. And it's not based upon how many human beings you send to a standards meeting. That's not what drives it, or the number of papers that you submit, because not all of the contributions are created equal. Some have more technical merit than others. Others, you know, more substantive contributions into the standard. And then, lastly, a very biased view of mine is the fact that I believe that when you look at everything that's happened in the internet, you look at everything that's happened in 3GPP, most, if not the vast majority, of the technical innovations typically come out of the United States. I don't think that's changed, um, despite the number of people that go to standards meetings. And I think that that. Is evidenced in what you're seeing in five G. I think that's evidenced in the new security architecture that's being introduced by five G. And so, again, I think we can't, you know, in some sense, just allow the law of numbers to kind of provide us with a jaundiced view of how the standards bodies work.
1: So, Melanie, what I mean, the government has a lot going on on supply chain. Some, but not all of it, is five G driven. But it's all sort of in the information and communications technology space. Um, what is the private sector doing to address the concerns across the government about supply chains and and the provenance of certain equipment,
3: et cetera? So for their part, the wireless industry is very proactive on using um, a secure supply chain when they're designing their networks and devices. And they're also, they have implemented risk management policies and security requirements that they then pass on to their suppliers. But There is a lot of activity happening throughout the government. The FCC is engaged. DHS is very engaged. Commerce is engaged. And so, you know, we and our members and the industry as a whole are really engaged with all these agencies through the process. And one of the things that we've been kind of pushing them to work on is making sure that they're all collaborating with each other. Um, So DHS for its part has Um, the ICT Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force, which is um, 60 members from the IT sector, the comm sector, and government. So 20 from each, which is really, you know, I mean, it's big and that's a big group, but it's great because everybody is sort of represented. So on the government side, the FCC is there, Commerce, FBI, you know, DOD, DHS, obviously they're hosting it. And so it's really been a great venue to start, having those, all of those discussions and pulling everyone together. And so I think what we've been really working on is trying to have that be a hub for all of these discussions to ensure consistency throughout, because there is, you know, I mean, these are very important issues and everybody wants to be engaged in doing the right thing. And I think that to the extent that everybody can continue to collaborate and make sure that one process is, is very helpful. So we are actively engaged with all of them.
1: Yeah, I think one theme that emerged from the comments to the Department of Commerce on their supply chain proceeding, as well as the comments to the FCC on their much narrower supply chain proceeding, was the need for that collaboration, because these issues are complicated. They're sort of fraught as well with foreign policy and national security considerations. So you, you don't want, can't have one agency sort of going rogue to do its own thing without marrying that up, because it's really, from my personal opinion, it's not fair to the business community to be surprised by things, right? The planning for these networks takes a long time.
2: Just to chime in on that, uh, and the problem that the private sector has when things become very fragmented in government is the fact that you know, the resources that you're drawing upon in the private sector, the subject matter experts, they're, they're, they're a precious resource. And to the extent that we can have it focused and we can have the the efforts go on in a way that's consistent and coordinated through government is absolutely essential, because otherwise, you're fragmenting these very precious resources that we need to deploy secure 5G, but at the same time, it's the same set of resources that have to be engaged when you're looking at supply chain security. So so again, to the, to the extent that there can be better coordination and better collaboration across government so that, again, things are better coordinated is much appreciated by the private sector. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So maybe we should pivot to privacy a little bit, Kat. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think there's a lot going on with privacy at the federal (laughs) level, at the state level. I think that's an understatement. Uh, What we want to do is give listeners a sense of what it all means for 5G and the IoT, that uh, ecosystem that 5G will fuel. So let's start, uh, Melanie, um, with something more on the technical side. A few commenters are are claiming that um you know 5G will limit and reduce privacy what are your perspectives here are there similar privacy enhancements like we see on the security side for a 5G future
3: yes there are just to start, I there are there is a lot of chatter that five uh, G is going to reduce privacy, and I think that's sort of an unfair framing. I think that what five G is going to do is to enable these millions of devices to be connected, and new use cases that I can't even imagine yet. You know, from connected cars and the improvements in telehealth and the ability to do all of these amazing things, and with that will come. Increased data and increased, so it's a vaster area to to maintain privacy. But I don't know that it it reduces privacy, right? So like, there's there's more data, there's more devices, um, which all need to be protected. And so one of the benefits of five G, it will have enhanced privacy protections. Um, and the most important, it will be the encryption of the IMSI, which is a unique identifier that um, carriers use. And so that in five G um, will now have the capability of being uh, encrypted.
0: So yeah, like we were talking about, there's a lot going on with privacy at the federal level. I think a good place to start is with NIST and its recent privacy framework that it just released, um, which is um, or promises to be a really helpful tool for industry and uh, all organizations. Can you give us a sense of why that document
3: is so important in in, in CTIA's role in, in the collaboration leading up to it? Yeah. So uh, to, to NIST credit on the developing the framework, they really did from the start make an effort to engage with the private sector on this, similar to the way that they engaged with the private sector on the development of the cybersecurity framework, which I think was you know very well received and is used by industry. And so I think that there is definitely promise for the privacy framework to be used in the same way they came up with what i think is a very you know great start especially for businesses that are maybe don't have as mature of Privacy processes in place as others to really know where to start and to take a look at what they need to be thinking about and how to develop those programs um, within their companies. And you know, it has all of the the great characteristics from the cybersecurity framework. It's voluntary and risk based, and um, you know, and and I so I think it has a lot of promise to be to really helpful to businesses as they're starting to either develop these programs. Or to, you know, take a second look or, you know, because I think one of the other things that we're starting to see as, um, you know, more and more things are connected is that companies that didn't quite realize that they were data companies are now data companies because they have, you know, devices and, and things like that. And so there, you know, there are some that are kind of, to their credit, catching up. And I think this will be a very useful tool for them.
0: You were talking earlier about NIST's work in the IOT space on the core cybersecurity baseline. I think in that area, NIST has tended to focus on cybersecurity and and make a conscious decision to set privacy uh, to the side for the time being. Do you see that changing now that the privacy framework has been uh, released and there's the, a heightened focus on privacy issues?
3: I I think it will, right? I think that they have for a long time, been thinking about how to incorporate privacy into many of this, you know, traditional security to frameworks and documents that they have. And one, one thing that we've always cautioned is that privacy and security, while they, you know, in some way are connected, are also different. You know, their security is, is and some of the practices that are, are part of cybersecurity programs are very well established, and they're a little more Black and white, a little more concrete, and on privacy, it's really more of a developing area. You know, some of the the uh, policy judgment calls haven't quite been made yet on definitions and things like that. So it's not quite as developed as um, the cybersecurity side. And so I think we had been for a long time cautioning to like you know be careful not to merge those two too early. Um, now, as I think that NIST is is starting to think and more you know formulate their thoughts on. The privacy framework, I'm sure that we will see them incorporating that more, but I still think we we need to be cautious with continuing to recognize that there are differences there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a theme we've hit several times
1: with NIST as they've updated some of their special publications, which are targeted at contractors. Um, and the federal agencies, but there are, in some of their seminal documents, they're putting privacy controls and security controls together, which I think is challenging because the privacy framework that NIST is doing, to its credit, is supposed to be agnostic in terms of the regulatory regime that it's operating under. Because, as you mentioned, privacy does have a lot of value judgments. It's not nearly as black and white or um, outcome-oriented as some of the cybersecurity controls. So I guess that leads to a question is, you know, mentioning that privacy framework and and it's value-based. Is it time now to move to federal privacy legislation to actually answer some of those
3: values questions that seem to be in there? Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That is, like, I I think that we we desperately need comprehensive federal privacy legislation. Um, You know, that... We're seeing so, you know, we have CCPA and we, you know, Washington is close to passing a privacy law. So there, you know, there are many states involved. There's international aspects to privacy. And I think it's time for that there needs to be a comprehensive federal privacy law that treats that focuses on the data and not necessarily the different types of companies or the different sector or the different technologies Um but, you know, really like takes a look at the data and the sensitivity of that data. And, you know, the time is, yes, definitely now.
1: <laughs> What's well, funny, we were at a privacy event uh, recently and w- one of the speakers actually, the, the sort of instructor sort of person was saying, that no, the, the, the big companies don't want federal legislation. They want to remain unregulated. And I had Kat and I sort of had to hold our giggles. We're just like, no, everybody wants federal legislation now.
3: Well, and I think, you know, NTIA uh, put out their request for uh, – comment or information last year Uh, and the comments I think were overwhelmingly in support of you know federal privacy legislation I think that there is a lot of agreement that now is is the time to do this and and it's it's needed so hopefully we we see some positive movement on that front
1: well, in the meantime, um, it's important to remember or think about the real-world consequences of all of these wonderful 5G benefits. John, you are a big wine aficionado, and um, I'm curious how you think the Internet of Things is going to affect your wine consumption, your wine snobbery, however you want to call <laughs> it. But there's a lot there.
2: This is the hardest question of the day. <laughs> uh, but no, it's it's an interesting question because, um, like everything, 5G will touch even in the wine sector, (laughs) and uh, when you look at what are some of the improvements that it could bring to the farming industry as well as the cultivation of uh, the wine industry? I mean, everything from soil sensors to weather sensors to automated vehicles that facilitate the harvest, uh, advanced fermentation monitors to help assess the maturity of the wine so that you get it at the perfect bottling time, so that it ages properly in the bottle, so on and so forth. Those, those are all wonderful things that only five G could bring to the fore to the wine industry, and. Again, Again, I'm looking forward to it because, indeed, I think it, it'll be the benefit of the industry. It'll be benefit of all wine aficionados globally.
1: Wonderful. Well, on that note, uh, we can go and grab a drink later. Um, <laughs> thank you both for joining us for this episode of the Wiley Connected podcast. It's delightful to talk with you about 5G and all of the fun things that are going on and try and bring a little clarity to some of these discussions that are going on in our public policy world in D.C. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during our podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.